0: Good morning, everyone. Um, we will be in Mark chapter 11 today. Uh, before I get started, just a couple of things. Adam mentioned that there was a wedding last night, and that was accurate. Uh, a couple in our church got married last night. Joe and Lauren Bomar, we can say now, uh, they got married last night, so some of us were at it. Uh, my wife and I, my two kids were in it. And so I am, uh, it, was, it was in Blowing Rock, is that right? Is that a place? That sounds like a place. Blowing Rock. Uh, I get Blowing Rock and Banner Elk mixed up, um, so I think it was in Blowing Rock, and so was a drive home, and, and I'm just, I'm tired, my, my throat is sore from yelling, I don't know why I was yelling, if it was a wedding, not like a sporting event, but apparently I was yelling, and so my throat hurts, but um, we're gonna get into the word today, but if I sound like horse or something, that explains that, hopefully. Um, today we're going to look at something that is, is, can be kind of difficult. Uh, we're going to be in a passage of scripture. We're going to go from, from one, um, we'll probably make it to the end of 20, let's see, 25. Uh, so we'll go through uh, a good, no, we'll go through 19, one through 19. Um, and so we'll go through a good passage of scripture today. We're going to look at something about Jesus, about God that can be difficult. We're going to look at, how uh, two seemingly opposite character traits can exist in one person and how that works. Um, so, so there's two things about that as I'm getting started, is that we'll really want to kind of follow along as best we can because we're going to be looking at how Christ can um, have two seemingly different character traits, but, still, but that not be uh, confusing or be at odds with each other, but actually make him a complete person or complete, uh, personality and how that is in us as well as Christians. And so we'll read together, uh, believe that the reading of the word is important, the public reading the word. So we'll read through the whole, all verses one through 19 together. Uh, and then we'll go through verse by verse and kind of go through it. Uh, so Mark 11, uh, Mark chapter 11, verse one. Now they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of, some of those standing there said to them, why are you doing untying that colt? And they told them that Jesus had said, and they let him them go. he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it into a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came by, they went out of the city. So we're getting to a part in Mark that some people call Passion Week, or where Jesus enters Jerusalem the week of his of his looming death and and death and resurrection. And so this is primarily called Passion Week or or Palm Sunday when Jesus enters into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. So I want to go through that because I think it's an interesting story. We say this all the time at the Grove. We've got to read the Bible like it's true, not like a newspaper um, or even like a history book, although history books are typically true. Uh, But we want to read it like it's something that actually happened. So Jesus, he's coming in they're getting close to Jerusalem. He tells his disciples, says, hey, I want you to go get this donkey. Go get this colt. No one's ever, ever wrote it. And if anyone says anything to you, just say the Lord has need of it and, and then bring it to me. And so they go and uh, the disciples go, they find this donkey. I think this is a funny story because like just the kind of faith it would take like to steal a donkey because Jesus told you to do it. And then someone's like, hey, w- what are you doing with the donkey? You're like, um, the Lord has need of it. They're like, oh, okay, cool. Go ahead and take it. Like, that's just like a, a, to me, that's just a funny story. Like, I don't know if I would do that if Jesus was like, hey, go take this donkey. It's totally cool. Like, if anyone says anything, do you just say this, like, these couple words and they'll let you go? And I just imagine the disciples who haven't, prim- who haven't been men of faith, really, throughout the book of Mark, um, all of a sudden go, they take the donkey. Someone says something and they're just like, I guess we'll try what he said. Let's, the Lord has need of it? And they're like, yeah, go ahead and take it. So he, he brings, brings this donkey. And there's a couple things that's important here is that no one's ever read this, rode this colt or donkey um, and they put their cloaks on it. And so he sits on it. Um, and this is really something, it's a picture. This is how a king would enter back into the city. And, and he would, the, the king's horse, the, typically be a horse. The king's horse was a horse that no one was allowed to ride but the king. So it was important that Jesus rode a uh, an animal that no one else has ever ridden because he was showing that he's the king, that Jesus is the king. And so really we've been talking throughout Mark that Jesus is the king. And this is another picture where Jesus is showing everyone, I'm the king. I'm gonna ride into Jerusalem on a, uh, a donkey, but that donkey's never has never been ridden. It is mine. I'm the king. No one's ever ridden this donkey. But the weird thing is, is that it's a donkey. Like typically it's this nice, Big horse that the king would ride in on. But Jesus rides in on an animal that's more fit for a child or a hobbit, if you're a fan of Lord of the Rings. I think that's like kind of what uh, Frodo or Bilbo rode, and it was a funny scene in the movie, and in the book. And that's the kind of thing that Jesus is riding into town on. And Jesus... Really fulfilling a prophecy in Zechariah 9, nine, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. See, there's this odd juxtaposition where Jesus is the king of the universe. He's, this, he's the creator of everything. Everything that was created was created through him and created for him, but he doesn't fit in the world's idea of kingship. He doesn't fit into the world's idea of what a king should look like. He's brought, he, he's brought two things together, majesty and meekness. One of the greatest sermons I've ever read, I haven't heard it, was in 1738 by a guy named Jonathan Edwards. Um, It was called The Excellency of Christ. And I want to read um, a part of it in a minute. But before I get there, there's a passage of scripture that Jonathan Jonathan Edwards was talking about. And that was Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 through 6. And there's, again, an odd juxtaposition. And so Edwards reads this and develops a sermon from it. And it reads, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing in the center of the throne. See, this is interesting because John's told to look for a lion. And when he looks, he doesn't see a lion, he sees a lamb that looks like it's been slain. And see, there's this idea that Jonathan says, I'm going to quote Jonathan Edwards here. It says, the lion excels in strength and in majesty in his, of his appearance and voice. The lamb excels in meekness and patience. He's sacrificed for food and clothing. But we see that Christ in the, in the text compared to both, because in the diverse excellencies of both wonderfully, of both wonderfully meet in him, there is in Jesus Christ a conjunction of such really diverse excellencies as otherwise would have seemed to us utterly incompatible in the same subject. And so what Jonathan's saying is using his imagination, he's saying, look, like Jesus is compared to both a lion, excuse me, a lion and a lamb. That, that the excellencies of a lion and a lamb are brought together in Christ. We, we would see that in our, our eyes as something that couldn't be compatible. The lion would eat the lamb. But in Jesus, the two perfectly exist. Edwards goes on to, to detail in the ways Jesus combines character traits that would other be, otherwise be mutually exclusive. We find infinite majesty, yet complete humility. Perfect justice, yet boundless grace. Absolute sovereignty, yet utter submission to the father, all sufficiency in himself, yet entirely trusting and depending on God. And so Jesus encapsulates this juxtaposition and it's Jesus riding in on a donkey that shows Jesus's majesty as the king, but his humility as the son of God. This mighty king rides a little donkey fit for a child or a hob into Jerusalem. And he deals with what he finds there. In Mark chapter 11, it goes on, verses 11 and 12. It says, and he entered Jerusalem, went into the temple. And it was already late. Um, when, he, he, when he looked around and everything, was already late. He went out to Bethany with the 12. And then verses uh, 15 through 18, it says, and they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the temples of the money or the tables of the money changers, and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple, and he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And so Jesus walks in enters the temple area and that 's significant because this area that Jesus enter, enters into is the area that 's for Gentiles or for non Jewish people who want to come and worship at the temple. so Jesus goes in there and, and you, you've, maybe you 've seen movies or you 've seen footage of what of what the united States um, like economy like the, like the trading floor looks like it's, It looks like chaos right people are screaming and they 're yelling they 're doing sign language and they 're like writing down things little sheets of paper i don 't know how uh, the stock market and the trading in the United States works, but I think it's crazy that they just do signs and like write things on paper. That seems crazy. But this is what Jesus is walking into, something similar, except you're adding livestock into the mix. Like imagine looking at the United States, like the New York Stock Exchange trade floor. People are yelling, they're trading things, changing things. You have livestock. In fact, so much livestock that... Um, Ancient historians, uh, or the ancient historian Josephus tells us that in the Passover week alone, 255,000 lambs were bought and sold and sacrificed in the temple courts. 255,000 lambs. Like this was chaos, but it's important because Jesus goes into where the Gentiles are supposed to be and he sees money changers, he sees chaos, he sees a lot of busyness, It's not supposed to look like that. It's supposed to be a place where Gentiles have access to God, have access to God. The idea, it says um, in the chief priests, in the scribes, verse 18, heard, um, heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him as they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Because the people are hearing that, you know, everything you've heard up until now is that, the Jewish people have access to God in such a way that uh, once a year on Yom Kippur, the chief priest or the high priest would, would go into the place where the presence of God dwelt, the Holy of Holies, but he only could go in there carrying a blood sacrifice. And here's why. Because the presence of God cannot be with sinners because it would destroy, it would kill the sinner. And this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. See, the Garden of Eden was the original place where the presence of God dwelt. And Adam and Eve walked with God, and they they communed with God, and they had a relationship with God. But when they sinned, when they ate from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, God banished them from the Garden of Eden because they could not exist. They could not continue to live in the presence of God, for it would kill them. And so he banishes it from the Garden of Eden, and he puts a flaming sword at the entrance to the Garden of Eden to keep them from coming back. So there's this flaming sword, and then then the presence of God later in in the Book of Genesis, or in in the uh, the first five books of the Bible, you see that the presence of God then dwells into the in the tabernacle, and then it dwells in the temple, and in the temple is this holy of holies, and the only way anyone could ever enter in the presence of God is by carrying a blood sacrifice. And Jesus is saying here that, that there, there's coming, that, that, that the temple courts, the temple is supposed to be a house of prayer for the, all nations, not just the Jewish people, not just Israel, but all nations, all nations will have access to God. And he's, he's hinting here that there's going to be a time where the presence, and, and the, the prophets hinted at this throughout the, throughout the Old Testament. They'd say things like, the glory of God will fill the earth like the sea's or as the water fills the oceans, that covers the earth. And so there's this idea that Jesus is saying is that the presence of God will one day no longer dwell in the Holy of Holies, but will dwell in my people, will dwell and it will cover the earth. And they were astonished at this teachings. And the people who wanted to keep it for themselves, the, the high priests and the Pharisees who wanted to keep it for themselves, they didn't want that. They wanted the presence of God for themselves. And so they wanted to destroy Christ. But Jesus' reaction to them turning a place into that was to start throwing furniture over, start telling people to get out, that my house will be called a a house of prayer for all nations. Pagan, unwashed Gentiles could go directly to God in prayer. But see, the problem is, is that no one can get past the flaming sword that's guarding the presence of God. No one can get past this when we turned from God, it had dreadful consequences. We build our lives on other things besides God. We build it on ourselves, on, our, on power, on wealth, on status, acclaim, family, race, nationality. It's caused conflicts. It's caused wars, violence, poverty, disease, death. And it's trampled over. We've trampled over this earth. And see, we can't just tell God, sorry. Can I please get back into your presence? Can I please, would you just please let me walk past the flaming sword? We all know that because if someone wronged us, if someone did a deep wrong to us and the judge said, can't, they said, sorry, can't you just let it, let, it, like, let it go? We wouldn't do that. And it wouldn't have anything to do with vengeance or anger. It'd have a lot to do with, it's just not how justice works. It would be an injustice. Your refusal to just let it go would have nothing to do with bitterness or vengeance but you've been badly wronged and sorry isn't enough. Something else is required. Some kind of costly payment must be made in order to put things right again. And so the flaming sword guarding the presence of God is God's eternal justice and it will not fail to exact payment. But here's the good news is that Jesus went under the sword for us. And when Jesus went under the sword for us, the sword broke him, but it also broke itself. And see, so there's this idea that someone once said is that in the death of Christ, death died. And see, we don't have to run from the presence of God anymore. We don't have to be protected from the presence of God because Jesus paid that punishment for us. Jesus broke the sword by letting it break him. But see, Jesus actually visited the temple twice. So we read that he visited, when he first came to Jerusalem, went there, looked around, it was getting late, so he left. And then he decided to come back the next day. But on his way back, something interesting happened. I wanna read that passage of scripture again, and we can talk about it. Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark uh, chapter 11 verses, verse 12 through 14 says, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And later in Mark, we'll see that that actually happened, that it was, it was withering. But this is an interesting passage of scripture because, to be honest, when I first read it as a Christian, and we're going through you know, a gospel, I read this and I'm like, man, Jesus is doing like a temper tantrum. Like, the tree didn't have fruit. It's not the season for the tree to have fruit. Like, why is he being a child about this? Um, but that's not what's going on here. It's not what's going on here. It's not that Jesus is just having a bad day and putting a, putting a curse on the tree because he was hungry, because it wasn't bearing fruit and out of season, no less. But see, Middle Eastern fig trees had two kinds of fruit. They had figs. They also had these little fruits that would grow out of season. And the cool thing is is that fig fig trees would basically have fruit almost all year, these little nodules that they'd have. And and as people were traveling, if they saw that a fig tree had leaves, they know they could go there and get some food for the travels. And so Jesus sees that this fig tree has leaves, and it should have little nodules that are very good to eat, and there's going to be tons of them. And so from a distance, this tree had leaves and it looked like it had growth. When he got close to it, it had no fruit. And see, Jesus, this isn't a random story in the middle of another story, but it's very similar to what Jesus saw when he went to the temple, is that this temple, there's a lot of busyness, a lot of growth, a lot of people in it. And it looked really busy and happy, like God was doing some pretty cool things at the temple. But when he actually got to it, you saw that though it had a ton of leaves and growth, that there was no fruit. And see, there's this sense that a lot of times in church, as long as we're busy, as long as we're doing things and things are happening, people are coming, things are moving, that's good. And that's a good thing. But the reality is it's not good. When a tree has, or a plant of any sort has growth, but no fruit, that's a sign of disease or decay that's going on underneath. And so I think oftentimes in Bible Belt, Southern Christianity, we equate busyness in our Christian life as pleasing to God. We equate that as the church grows and as we, uh, as, you know, big cities, as we plant more campuses and we do all these different things, that's a good thing. Things are growing, but we have to make sure we look at what's actually happening in our church. And as it grows, that it's not just growing a bunch of leaves, but there's, when we get close, there's no fruit because Jesus clearly has a problem with that. And in our personal lives, I think oftentimes we see as I, as I grow in the knowledge of the Lord and I, I start knowing more about my Bible and I start knowing more about the things of the Lord, that that's a good thing. And that without fruit, that's just a ton of busyness that Jesus does not, is not pleased with. Jesus wants your fruit. He wants your heart changed. Throughout all of Mark, he's talking about heart, your heart. Throughout the entire book of Mark, Jesus is making it clear that he's going after your heart. And that's not just Mark. You read the book of Matthew. You read the book of Luke. Jesus is going after so much more than growth and leaves and all this behavior modification. He's going after your heart. He wants you, not your behavior, to change. This lesson, this parable, is against hollow religion and he's using the fig tree as a visual aid. It's verses like this that keep me up at night, that worry me. Because my my fear is it's so easy where we live to say, I go to church, I go to Bible study, I go to Sunday school, whatever your church, off, whatever the church offers. And man, like I'm pleasing the Lord. Like I'm I'm sitting under teaching. I'm learning. I'm doing this. I'm singing the songs. I raise my hands when I'm supposed to. I don't raise my hands when I'm not supposed to. And we do that, and we think, "Oh, the Lord loves this. Like, man, He's going to do stuff for me because I'm doing all this stuff for Him." But there's no fruit. There's no life transformation. There's so many people who were told, "All you have to do is pray this prayer, and you get into heaven." And they weren't really told the gospel. They weren't told that Jesus wants to change your life. They weren't told that Jesus wants you. And so they're sitting in church thinking everything's okay, but my fear is that there's so many leaves on their life, but there's no fruit. So later in the day, Jesus goes to the temple and he he sees all the fruitless activity. And so he takes that private lesson with his disciples and he makes it public and he makes this. Public spectacle to show that he wants more than your busyness. He wants the kind of life change that only comes from realizing that you've been ransomed, that he's bought you. You're no longer your own, but you're his. At the end of Jonathan Edwards' sermon on the paradoxical character of Jesus, he says, But the same radically different traits that are normal, never combined in any one person, will be reproduced in you as a follower of Christ. And so this idea that Jesus brings together all these different things into one person, that will be reproduced in followers of Christ. You're you're not just becoming a nice person but you're, or being more disciplined or a more moral person, but the life and character of Jesus is being given to you. The the king who comes into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, the storms into the temple with the audacity to say, this is my house. That's being reproduced in you. You're becoming a more complete person. You're becoming the person you were designed to be, the person you were ransomed to, to be. And I want to talk about one more juxtaposition of the Lord Jesus that, that's, that's, that's kind of in here. You can see it, and there's this, you can see this anger that's in Christ, right? You see this, this anger that, like, he's turning over tables. Like, you don't just do that with a smile on your face. Like that's like an angry act, right? And he, and he curses a fig tree. That word curse, that just sounds like not a good word. Like, that's an, that's, that has some anger, some, some, some feeling behind it. And so, there's this, I, I got in an argument. Uh, a couple months ago with a, a dear friend of ours. Um, and it was this idea that, that they said something, this cute phrase, and it was, Jesus um, hates the sin but loves the sinners. And I, I feel like we've all heard that. Is that. That's a thing people hear. Um, and so we got an argument about whether that phrase is true or not. And I want to just say from the beginning, before I get talking to this, like, is that phrase true Does Jesus or does God hate the sin but love the sinners? Yes, in a sense, that's absolutely true. But there's also some truth behind the fact that God hates sinners. That he's angry towards sinners. I want to read, I want to prove it to you. I don't want you guys to take my word for it. In Psalm chapter 5, verse 5, you can turn there, it'll also be up here. But it says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. This person was getting angry with me as I was, as I was talking through this and through talking about it and, and, and the fact that God would hate anyone was just so foreign to them. And, and I get it. I totally get it. Um, but it even goes further than hate. It says abhors. And you see, it doesn't say that God hates all evil or evil things, but evildoers. Like that's a person behind that. I want you to follow me here because I, I don't want you to hear something. I'm, I don't want you to hear the entire thing. So, so follow me. But God, does God hate sin? Absolutely. But does God hate sinners? A hundred percent. See, here's the problem with that phrase that God hates sin but loves the sinners is that what it does is it removes sin from ourselves. And it makes us think that sin is something that's out here. That's something that is not not really who we are something that we do and something that's out here but see sin isn't something that's out here sin is is who we are we are sinners and we sin because we're sinners we're not sinners because we sin and so God cannot separate the two God does hate sinners but hear me does God love sinners 100 percent. and the cross is a picture of God's great love for sinners and so there's this, there's this juxtaposition of Jesus, God, hating sinners and loving sinners. And how does that work? Because when we think about the cross, like we say Jesus died for my sins, right? That's a saying people say. And that's true in a sense, but it's more true to say Jesus died for me. Because again, when we say Jesus died for my sins, we're kind of, we're kind of putting it out over here. We're taking our sins away from ourselves. When we say Jesus died for me, That's more accurate because we are sinners and Jesus Christ died, not in the place of our sins, but Jesus Christ died in the place of us. He stood where we should have stood. He died the death we should have died. And see, and that's what the good news is, is that Jesus hates sin. He hates sinners, but he absolutely loves sinners, and he took their place. He took our place on the cross. On the place of our sins, our lies, our deceit, but he took our place on the cross. How can God show wrath, anger towards sinners, and love towards sinners at the same time? The answer is the cross. He absolutely hates sin and sinners, and he absolutely loves sinners. The cross is a picture of his anger and his love coming together for his people. And the good news is you trust in Christ and your sins are removed. Isaiah says he'll remember them no more. There's this story about a wealthy Englishman I heard uh, someone preach with one time, and I love it. This wealthy Englishman wanted to buy a car, super wealthy. He He could buy any car he wanted. He wanted to buy a really nice car. So someone told him, you know, you buy a Bentley, it'll be the nicest car. They'd never break down You'll have no problems with it. You buy a Bentley. So he goes and he buys a Bentley. And and, and some months later, he's driving around France with his Bentley. And and the Bentley breaks down. His car breaks down. So he's there. His car breaks down. He calls up Bentley. He's like, hey, what happened to the car? The car broke down. What is going on? And so they say, I'm sorry. What they did was they put a mechanic on a flight, flew him to France, came to him, fixed the car, and then left. That's pretty pretty good service, right? Pretty good service. And so he gets back in the car. He's driving. and he, He's a wealthy guy. Like he knows there's going to be a bill for that. Like he knows like there should be a bill coming for that. That that that's going to cost some money. And he's like, I'm well. I could pay that. And months, some months go by, and, and no bill comes. So he calls Bentley. He's like, Hey, like you know, uh, a couple months ago, you guys had a problem. You guys flew a mechanic out to me fixed my car and left. I haven't got to be like, I want to go ahead and clear this up. I don't like things hanging over my head. I want to go ahead and clear this up. So you just tell me how much I owe. And the lady on the phone says, hold on one second, puts them on hold and, and comes back sometime later and says, you know what, sir, I'm sorry. We don't have any record of anything ever going wrong with your car. And there's this, there's this sense that when Jesus looks at us, when God, the father looks at us, he looks at us and says, I don't have any record of anything ever going wrong in your life that in Christ there's not, you have his righteousness and Jesus took your sins on the cross. And there's that great exchange we've been talking about, that, that substitutionary atonement where Jesus takes our sins and he dies in the place of us and we get his righteousness and we get to come before the presence of God as God's people. And man, that's good news. That is good news. And so my prayer would be that we wouldn't Exchange the presence of God for busyness of the Christian life because we're losing in that exchange. If we think that Christianity is about being busy, about going to Bible study, about bringing your kids and, and, and doing all these things and, and we think that we're pleasing God by doing all those things, we're exchanging all those things for the one thing we need which is just being in His presence. And we come into His presence by trusting in Him and He'll take our sins away. He'll remember them no more. For the sake of his name, he has chosen not to hold any of your sins against you in Christ. And all you have to do is trust in his son, repent, and follow him. And so my prayer would be that as we, as a church, as the grove, as we, as we grow, we wouldn't just try and grow leaves. We wouldn't just try and get more branches on and have all these leaves. But we would be looking for fruit and we're looking for life change. So one of the ways we've done that is we, we have this recovery group called Steps. And, um, and right now we're in the middle uh, of, a, of, of a session. We're like, I think we're actually right in the middle of it. Um, and and it's, this is about fruit. We're, we're, this week, we're doing assessments of our lives. We're, we're doing assessments of, of sexual immorality in our lives. We're doing assessments of guilt and shame in our lives. And it's been a tough week for a lot of us. Man, it's been a tough week. People just digging in their own lives about sexual morality, about um, guilt and shame they're feeling in their life. But it's because we don't just care about growth or busyness. Like we want fruit. We want to examine our lives and see what what lies we're believing that's stopping that fruit from growing. We want to replace those lies with gospel truths that fruit may grow. And sometimes that means cutting off branches so that more branches and more fruit can come. So sometimes it's painful, and this has been a painful week for a lot of people here. And it's steps isn't something that you were able to join in when we started. Um, we're, we're our prayers that we would offer it again in, in the spring. We want to offer steps twice a year for the community. Um, it's a recovery program that's not just for, uh, you know, drug or alcohol abuse, but it's for, the, for, it's for the man who comes home and snaps at his kids because he's had a long day at work. And he justifies the anger because work is stressful. It's for, the, it's for the mom who looks in the mirror and wishes she was a different mom. She was one of those bloggers that she reads. Has image, self, self-image issues. It's for everyone. Everyone has, has hang-ups, has, has areas in their life where they need to replace lies with truth. So My prayer is that that would be the mark of the grove, is that we're not just a bunch of leaves and a bunch of branches and it looks like growth. But that fruit would grow. And that's how Jesus is going to change this area. not just through the grove, but through his whole church, all the churches together, bearing fruit, loving one another, being patient with one another and making much of his name throughout Mitchell County, Avery County, Yancey County. Like God wants his glory, his presence to fill this earth, to fill this county, to fill this area. My prayer is that uh, he would do that, whether he uses us or not. But he would do it for the sake of his name and for the good of his people. Um, we'll go ahead and play a couple songs, and feel free to stand, hold your hands, and just just really wrestle with what does your life look like? Is your life uh, a life of leaves and branches, or is it a life of fruit? Is it, have you trusted in Christ for your sins, and it, and has that exchange happened in your life? And maybe you're feeling some guilt and shame. You did this assessment this week, and. Uh, you're one of the people in steps and you're feeling guilt and shame and I just want to say to you as your pastor that God looks at you and he sees no record of wrong in your life. He sees and he's got no record of anything ever going wrong. And so we'll, we'll sing some songs then I'll come back up here and pray at the end. Let's pray. Father, I just uh, just come before you, Lord, just thankful for your word, God. Uh, as we can read these stories, Lord of Christ, God, that we can get a glimpse into Your heart and into Your character, Lord, and um, and I pray, God, that as as we go through this the rest of this day and this week, God, that You would just continue to just work into our hearts and into our soul, Lord, that that You want all of us, God, and, and that and that in exchange we get Your presence, we get to commune with You and to be with You, Lord, and so I pray, God, that that would be our desire, is to be in Your presence, to be. Your child, Lord, and I pray, God, that you would just remind us as we go through this week, God, that uh, that you have no record of wrongdoing in the life of Christians, Lord, that in the life of those who have trusted and repented, that you have no record of anything ever going wrong in their life. God, I pray, Lord, that that would be uh, not not embolden us to more self-righteousness, Lord, but embolden us to such a humility that we could extend grace to others, and we can make much of your name and for the sake of your glory, God. Lord, I love you. I pray that you would just bless those who are here, Lord, and I pray that they would um, uh, just have a deeper and deeper desire to follow you, to worship you, to love one another. God, I love you, and I pray this all in your son Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys.